we seem to be accelerating here every day. It seems like, you know, it's uh, we're further and further inverted. To me, that tells me that says to me that expectations are the Fed is going to tighten in December and then again in March. But after that, it looks like it's over. But, you know, by virtue by virtue of this inversion um, I, and the acceleration of the inversion, I think that perhaps the market is suggesting that that's not the case, that it will. We're going to tighten more. You're listening to IBKR Podcasts. Find more conversations at ibkrpodcasts.com. Please remember any trading discussions are for information purposes only and are not intended to portray recommendations. Please listen to further disclosures at the end of today's episode. Now, welcome to our show. Hello, and welcome to IBKR Podcast. I'm Stephen Levine, Senior Market Analyst at Interactive Brokers. I'm your host for today's program. We'll be speaking with Joe Burke. IBKR's head of fixed income to help us arrive at a clearer picture of yield curve inversions, what they might mean and their relationship or correlation with economic recessions. So welcome, Joe. Great to have you here with us again. Thanks, Steve. Nice to talk to you today. Great to have you back. I mean, we had this great discussion earlier this year. I'm sure you remember that. I do. We had this podcast called Inflation Rates and Recession. What's the worst that could happen? We explored, among other topics, yield curve inversions and there being an indicator of a coming recession, something like a year or 16 months or 18 months out from the time of the inversion. That's my understanding of them historically. We talked a bit about the two-year, 10-year relationship, the three-month, 10-year. And today, both parts of this yield curve are, are well into negative territory. The twos, tens part, at least since July, now close to around uh, 60 basis points out, three-month, 10-year since the latter part of October, now at about 50 basis points. I mean, yeah, there seem to be a lot of variables, I suppose, influencing each other. And I thought we could spend this time making some sense out of what's happening in the rates environment, its relationship with, say, other factors like GDP, monetary policy, inflation. I mean, to my mind, it's, it's a lot to unravel. But I thought we could start off with your insights about these yield curve inversions. I mean, so why are they happening? And what are your thoughts about their usefulness uh, today as an indicator for recession? Okay. Well, I think, I think they're happening uh, as a result of the Fed's you know, tightening and the expectations that the Fed will tighten further. And when you consider that, you know, what the impact of tightening is, it basically will be uh, either just a slowdown in growth or potentially a recession or worse. Um, so the market is, is I think what the market's doing is saying that, okay, the short end of the yield curve is going to be, uh, is going to follow uh, Fed funds and the Fed's hikes. But we don't believe that's going to uh, that inflation will be a long-term problem, and that's why, as you go out the curve, um, you know, uh, out towards like the five-year sector, you're seeing that um, rates are coming down. The um, uh, the expectation is that the uh, Fed will not need to maintain um, an aggressive monetary uh, tightening uh, for a long period of time. You know, as you pointed out, though, we you know we've been in negative territory between twos and tens for um, for quite some time. Um, and what's interesting to me is how how inverted we are. Um, if you go back to 2000, we had um, the uh, we had an inverted two-year, ten-year curve of around 50 basis points, and that lasted most of the 2000 to 2001 year. Um, but then it then it um, and then we went into that recession in uh, in late 2000. But that was you know in part you had the dot-com crash, you had other um, yeah. 
maybe Y2K had some in, had some uh, uh, influences, but um, but you know I, I think that this is potentially going to be a very protracted inversion, and I think that um, you know you could see this last you know well into the the two to three year uh, time period. Wow. Well, it's, I mean, it's, it's, can you characterize a recession based on the length of time that that part of the yield curve remains in negative territory or how deeply it goes negative? I mean, for example, the three-month 10-year went from like four to 60 basis points in like less than a month. And that was right. quite a move. Right. And, and that's sort of the point is we've been um, – We've been inverted for a while now. Um, I, I generally track twos and tens, um, but it's accelerating. You know, the the inversion is. You know, if you look at the 2000 um, uh, inversion, you know, it was was relatively brief and rel and you know it, it got down to 50 basis points, but then it bounced off of the 50 basis points level and and sort of started you know going closer to um, to to zero. Yeah. Um, you know, we seem to be accelerating here every day. It seems like, you know, it's uh, we're further and further inverted. Um, to me, that tells me that says to me that expectations are the Fed is going to tighten in December and then again in March. Um, but after that, it looks like it's over. But, you know, by virtue by virtue of this inversion um, I and the acceleration of the inversion, I think that um, perhaps the market is suggesting that that's not the case that it will we're going to tighten more yeah yeah does it also foretell anything about a potential recession for example does it say that the recession would be deeper than we would otherwise have or does it say that the more negative the basis points become does that mean that the recession itself would be more severe i think so i i do think i do think so because um you know, the more aggressively they tighten, the more of a shock that is to the economy, um, and the 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 risks increase that uh, that we're going to have a recession. You're you're starting to see, uh, you know, uh, payroll numbers roll over a little bit, particularly in the tech industries with the, all the layoffs. Yeah. Um, if that becomes more broad based, um, you know, it could be a real problem. Um, <clears throat> the Fed is definitely walking a tightrope here, and I think the idea with the the deeper the inversion, the um, the more um, more likely that we have a, a protracted recession. And I've heard some analysts talk about 1981 as a reference point in terms of, say, GDP inflation rates. I don't know if we're in unprecedented territory now in a way, but you know, if we make some kind of comparisons, for example, in, in 81, I understand twos tens went negative to a around 100 basis points. Some analysts believe we could get there with where we're going now as well. Backdrop then, I believe, was that in that year, Paul Volcker, who was the chair of the Fed at that time, was facing GDP growth at about 2.5%, uh, unemployment at about 8.5%. Inflation was, I believe, 10.3%. So at the peak, I guess that's a terminal rate, Fed funds went to 20% and then gradually came down from there. That recession lasted until November of 82. So we're looking at about a, a year's worth of recession, it looks like. And at the end of December of 82, inflation was down to 3.8%. So today, GDP is about the same as it was then, about 2.6%. Unemployment's much better than in 81 at 3.7%. I don't know if you factor in participation rate and 
other factors, but just on unemployment rate basis, it's far better than 81. And inflation somewhat lower at, at like 7.7%. But can we say that the Fed's tightening strategy now is, is working to ease inflation? Or, I mean, we're looking at, as you say, more expectations of tightening by the Fed. So they're not done yet. I guess it's maybe it's too soon to tell. Yeah, it, I think it is too soon to tell. I mean, we're also dealing with uh, sort of a hangover from COVID, right? We have supply chain issues to this day. Yeah. Um, I was speaking with um, with a colleague um, who his family has a business that has uh, you know, been seeing supply chain challenges to this day. Um, so yeah. it's not it's not just you know it wasn't it wasn't just toilet paper like during COVID. It's you know it, it's across the board and it's it's an ongoing issue. Yeah. So we, you know there's so there's price increases due to supply chain issues. So I I think that you know it's it's too soon to tell. But we have other factors. Also consider the liquidity that the Fed has pumped into the economy over the last ten years. Yeah. Right. It's been it's been a massive amount of liquidity. So that differentiates differentiates us from 1980 um, or 82 yeah. um, in a big the, way yeah. yeah so the Fed is is draining liquidity um, raising rates you have basically full employment at this point you have a tremendous demand for for workers um, and yet you're seeing some uh, some dips in, in, in employment in the in certain industries certainly the tech industry seems to be a, a, a a little bit um, uh, overbought at this point, and um, you know we could be, you know, you're seeing you're seeing those layoffs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's there's all sorts of things going on. I understand supply chains, but also exacerbating this in a, in a huge way. I think not only zero COVID policy or constraints in China, for example, but also in a reverse way in terms of chips and semiconductors, and the U.S. imposing certain bans on facilitating or helping China really advance their technology. But I, what I am interested in is rates are going higher, yes. And so this means a great opportunity for corporate bond buyers, I suppose, as well as municipal bond buyers, really any fixed income product that's tied to rates. I'm sure that's getting less expensive in terms of purchasing these. But I guess that comes at a huge risk as well. So what, what do you say to like the tenors of these? I mean, do you hold them for five, 10 years and hope that these rates reverse in due course? Or? Well, I mean, I, I think the I think with corporate bonds in particular, you're looking at the credit spread. So, you know, corporate bonds obviously are impacted by the overall interest rate environment, but they're also impacted by uh by credit spreads. So if yeah. if the stock market starts to roll over and and we we get into a bear market, corporate credit spreads are going to widen along with that. Yeah. Uh, you're, and so you can really get hurt uh, as a corporate bond buyer. Um, that said, you know what we see uh, from or hear from some uh, some people is that they're sort of relative value type of buyers of corporate bonds. So the um, they're looking at a historical time and say, okay, this should trade at plus 150. Uh, it's trading at 175, so it's cheap on a relative value basis. Yeah. So uh, um, I'm going to get long here and look to uh, exit that position when it gets to, say, 140, um, if, it, if it goes my way. Um, so that's what we see or, and hear about a fair amount um, is this sort of looking at – 
the clients are buying bonds uh, for moves, not necessarily just for income. I mean, yes, a traditional a traditional bond buyer will, you know, will, will buy a bond to earn some level of interest and and clip coupons, if you will. Yeah. Um, but but there are as many out there who are looking to um, uh, pay, play the market for for a move uh, in in the credit spread. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It also seems to be. Yeah, like you said, a fairly dangerous play to uh, get into this space the more that it looks like this recession as perhaps, as you characterized it, could be fairly prolonged or severe given the inversions that we're facing. So municipal bonds as well. I mean, municipal bonds must be facing some real hard times, I would think, as well. I mean, they've got all sorts of issues that they contend with in terms of, I suppose, the political environment, et cetera. But they also operate with respect to rates going higher. So, you know, what do you think about this market? Yeah, I think with munis, there's been a, an awful lot of pre-refunding of, um, of muni issues over the last few years. So uh, I think that a lot of the municipalities that could um, pre-refund have done so. And, you know, they've been able to lower their borrowing costs in this, you know, ahead of the... Um, uh, the Fed tightenings, yeah. and you know, I, I think there that many are in pretty good shape. I mean, there are some that are that are perennially struggling, but um, but you know, I think most have have pretty clean balance sheets. So, yeah, they they will you know it will have an effect on uh, you know new projects that want to raise money to go build something you know a, a highway or whatever you know that's going to raise the cost of capital for sure yes. um, it, with higher rates, but. But overall, I think that the the market and the issuers in the marketplace have have done a good job of um, of taking advantage of the lower interest rates when they could. We did see certain defaults, I remember, not too long ago, and there were some fears of some contagion in terms of default. It wasn't huge, but it did happen. Right. I believe in Alabama at the time. I remember that. Uh, I think Detroit also defaulted at one Detroit. point. Yeah. Yes. There were some big, big defaults. New York also faced a default, I remember, in 75 or something like that. So, I mean, is there any talk or fear that, you know, we might be seeing some kind of wave of municipalities defaulting? I don't think so. I mean, you know, New York certainly, um, you know, during COVID, there was a lot of concern about New York because they have so much debt, like the Transit Authority, uh, New York State Dormitory Authority. These are um, these are. You know, large issuers of, of municipal bonds, um, and the concern was, well, if no one's going to going to college and they're not paying, you know, they're paying the room and board, um, where's the revenue going to come from to pay the make the interest payments on these uh, these <laughs> revenue on these these revenue bonds, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, same same thing with the transit authority. You know, no one's crossing the George Washington Bridge because they're home. Um, you know. And there was concern. I mean, there was talk about it. We talked right. about it internally. You know, is there something to be worried about? And, you know, it turned out to be just fine. There, you know, and, uh, you know, the rating agencies have, you know, continually assessed these issuers. And um, I am not aware of anything that, that's problematic. It's a tough city, so. right? I mean, it, it can, it's pretty resilient. It seems like it can pretty much withstand, you know, an entire economic lockdown and their munis will still be. Uh, uh, right. Yeah. It's pretty resilient. That's great. Right. And with the corporates, you know, are there certain sectors that you think would fare less widening than others? Probably certain defensive sectors, I would think. But it's likely that there will be certain areas of industry that will fare better or at least not fare as 
badly during any potential severe recession, in your view? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, industrials are always the one you worry about, because if if the economy slows dramatically, you know, uh, the number of John Deere tractors uh, are, that are purchased will, will drop as well. So yeah. those types of things. And energy, um, you know, is is a commodity, really. So it's, um, uh, you know, potentially they will perform well um, as long as, you know, energy prices uh, stay high. Um, but I, w- I would think the bigger issue is going to be um, going to be industrials and perhaps tech. I mean, we've seen, you know, as we talked about a few minutes ago, you know, tech um, tech has done uh, has had some struggles lately. You know, we've seen, um, you know, certain companies laying off. You know, does that continue? Is it is it just they needed to do a little bit of pruning uh, or is there a real problem there? And I don't think we know yet. There are, there are some talk that I've heard from some analysts about digitization. I'm not sure if that factors in here exactly, but it seems that perhaps the U.S. has reached a certain peak in terms of its digitization capacity or capabilities. Maybe it's become too much of a mature market where other regions are kind of either catching up or have their own industry that can handle what they need in terms of technology like Asia, for example, or Europe. So I I don't know. It's a very fascinating thing to look into and see what's happening within technology. But that's it's poised for certain risk that may be unexpected. Right. Right. I think definitely something to watch. So, you know, we're talking about certain products, um, corporate bonds, municipal bonds, treasuries. But Treasury, I think the Treasury also has done some moves with certain products that it hadn't done before, or at least very recently. For example, it, it transitioned its four-month bill to benchmark status. Uh, and right. it did that pretty recently. It also reintroduced its 20-year bond. I think you know that's yep. the first time it did that since 86. It's a, as part of an additional tool to expand its borrowing capacity. But how do you see these products in terms of their potential benefits and risks? I mean, could, could we have done without them? Or, you know, why is the Fed making these moves with these particular ones? Well, I think it it's sort of, there, there's a big gap between, well, we'll talk about the 20-year first, but there there's a big gap between 10s and 30s. Having a 20-year bond, benchmark bond, um, gives a, a little bit more structure to the curve, the longer end of the curve. So, um so I, I think it it adds some value from the standpoint that you have a more um, inclusive curve, if you will, because what happens is you get you get these 30 year bonds that are issued. And as they start to move down the curve, um, you know, the, there's a bit of a disconnect between where they should be trading, you know, relative to the 30 year and relative to the 10 year. Yeah. So to have a benchmark in the in between those two, I think sort of sort of firms up the curve. And I, and I know you've, you've been experiencing quite a bit of activity pretty recently uh, on your side of the desk with rates and fixed income. Uh, we talked about that a bit earlier, even today. I mean, it was it sounds like you have your hands full these days with where rates are going. Is the 20-year anything that you experience as being something of dealing with a lot of activity there? or No, um, I would say, you know, I don't look at it daily, but it seems like our our client base tends to be more focused on 10 years and in yeah. rather than the longer end of the curve. Um, you know, I, I, th- historically, that's what I've observed is that we're our, our clients tend to tr- tend to be involved in the, the 10 year and in sector of the curve. Okay. okay. A, lot, a lot of bill, a lot of bills, a lot of short coupons, um, a lot of off the runs, 
we don't, you know, sometimes these off the runs can be a basis point or two cheaper to the on the run. Um, and we, I, I've seen clients take advantage of that uh, increased yield. How would you describe the environment today with your clients? I mean, I, I understand they're going from 10 years in, but in general, I mean, what's the attitude out there on the street as rates are climbing, as the inversion is getting deeper, it seems, and accelerating, as you mentioned, what is the sentiment out there? I mean, how, how are clients reacting? How are, how are people reacting in the fixed income markets? Well, I think to a large degree, you know, the, we have interest rates now that are above zero. So I think there's, yeah. you know, there's a great deal of celebrating about that. Um, <laughs> you know, for, for people who have a, have a portfolio that is at least part uh, fixed income, yep. you know, for a long time, for, for many years, you know, you've had rates near zero. Uh, you know, 2007, 2008, after the credit crisis, you know, the Fed uh, lowered rates, then we went up a little bit, um, and then COVID came and it went back to zero. So yep. this is like the first time um, in, in a very long time that we have, uh, we have, you know, solid, you know, four handle yields on, on treasuries. Um, yeah. You know, it has to be back to, I would guess, 2005 or so would be, you know, last time we had uh, rates this high in the sort of the belly of the curve. Um, but yeah, so I think, you know, I think there's a general degree of happiness that there's, there's stuff to buy. I mean, there's, there's obviously caution that, um, you know, that the Fed could continue to tighten, that'll erode the value of your fixed income instruments. But yeah. but to the extent that you have a fixed income portfolio, when you go out and buy, put money to work now, you're earning something on your cash. Yes, we have had quite a journey of this target range of the Fed's fund rate. And I think that was introduced actually during the credit crisis. I think Bern it was. Bernanke came out with like, you know, a, a new target range uh, yeah. between zero and, and a quarter percent. So it was effectively at zero. Right. And they've had the hardest time trying to lift off of that for years. I don't think it was for lack of trying. I think they did try to, to lift off from that place. But you had taper tantrum. I think that was something like 2013 or 14. Sounds, sounds right. In that area. Um, and, yep. And then you had sovereign debt crisis in Europe really throw everyone for a loop uh, from 2011 through the next few years uh, till about 2014, 15. And, and as soon as it seemed like we were getting higher in rates, it was a flood back into the treasury market to, uh, to, to capitalize on that. And it just tamped them back down again. So it was almost impossible right. to, get, to get off of them. So yeah, I'm sure that people are very happy about that. I suppose there's also a lot of fears about unrealized losses because of it as well. I can just imagine that. I mean, how much higher do you think they could go? Where do you think, say, for example, the 10-year could go? Okay, the end of the year is about a month from this recording. So let's say that you know we're close to the end of the year now. Where, where do you think we're at? I mean, I think, I think 375, maybe 380. Okay. On the 10-year. All right. All right. Great. I mean, you know, it, it, it kind of depends. I mean, I think we have to really watch non-farm payroll. Um, and I think, you know, and, and all the other, uh, you know, data that comes out that matters, you know, PPI, uh, CPI, durables, retail sales, yeah. you know, it, any sort of sign that the, um, that the economy is kind of, you know, weakening yeah. uh, is, is going to be problematic. And, and in that case, I, I, you know, I, I 
would th- expect the tenure to go the other way. I expect you to see the you know tenure re- cl- getting closer to uh, three and a half rather than three and three quarters. Yeah. So. No, that's oh, that's great. That's great. But uh, you know, and I suppose we're going to ask you, you know, what what you think now because we had this podcast before about what's the worst that could happen. I think that in our last discussion, you had mentioned that basically, I think inflation could be a, a freight train, like a runaway freight train. Like we, maybe there was no stopping it. Maybe the Fed was behind the curve and they were a bit too late in raising rates as they're doing now to try and combat it. But now that we've seen the Fed raise rates a few times this year. And now that rates have lifted off of that zero to a quarter percent, effectively zero percent bound, what do you think is the worst that can happen at this point? I think the worst thing that could happen is we don't show two things. One, we don't see any relief from inflation. So we've we had a you know a temporary pause um, recently, and we hope that that continues. But what if it doesn't? If it you know if the in, the inflation numbers next month and in January you know look bad. Um, what happens when China comes back to life um, from from the COVID lockdown? You know, does that accelerate inflation in, in the U.S.? Or um, so you you have that, and then I think you have to again look at labor. If um, if the tightening is causing significant layoffs and the economy weakens, then you have the, our 1970s problem of stagflation, right? You have um, you have higher rates, the Fed trying to raise rates to um, to tamper inflation, not really succeeding. Um, but at the same time, uh, uh, causing da- uh, damage to the economy um, and losing their political will to uh, to continue to tighten because, you know, the of the suffering uh, a weak economy would cause. Um, you know, uh, hopefully we don't get there, but I, I just throw it out there as a possibility. Yeah, it's a very dire scenario. Uh, yeah, it's very dire. And and I think looking at inflation in the UK today. I understand that was another 40 plus year high for them. I think it was something at 11%, I think if I'm if I'm not mistaken. But if that's any indication of where inflation could go in terms of where we're at, I mean it's been gradually sort of sinking lower, but that's no real indication of a trend in that direction. It's been kind of plateaued at about 8% it seems for the past few months. So yeah, I cross my fingers that we will see something work out here. Yeah. And, and not uh, get into such a, a horrible area. And so along the way, what do you think would be a great strategy for investors, say in the fixed income space or any other space, to watch out for? You know, uh, headwinds or catalysts that they should remain cautious of. I know you, you listed a bunch of economic reports, durables and uh, CPI, et cetera. But perhaps there's there are other things that they should be mindful about. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, portfolio laddering is is generally a pretty safe bet. Um, you know, if you're going to put, you know, some amount of money to work, um, ladder, construct a portfolio that whatever asset class you're talking about, um, whether it's munis or treasuries or uh, CDs or corporate bonds, um, a, a laddered portfolio, you know, lets you participate in you know, your maturity is out to say six years or out to 10 years, whatever period you feel comfortable with and have a maturity every two years. So, or every year. So you, um, you know, it, you have risk that rates go up or down, but this way you participate, um, if rates go up and you don't, there's, you, you help to mitigate your risk by having uh, money returned to you on, on a more, on a regular basis that you can reinvest um, at the better rates. It's a very simple strategy, but um, but I think it's it can be an effective one. And I I, um, I I think there's a lot of 
people who do that. I think that's, yeah. I think it's sensible. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. Is there anything else that you'd like to mention? Yeah, our treasury volumes have increased dramatically. Now, obviously, in part part of that is the higher interest rates and you know more clients being interested in in treasuries. But we've also added uh, a new venue, a TradeWeb Institutional, which is an RFQ-based platform where um, we have uh, we have seen our volumes explode. Um, as a result of of adding this venue, the, the liquidity available on TradeWeb is fabulous, and uh, our clients uh, are able to take advantage of that. Oh, so awesome. they're getting they're getting institutional pricing um, on on one lots, if you will. So you know it's all algo priced. They get responses back very quickly. Um, it, it's working very well for us, and I'm very happy with with uh, with the results. That's awesome. That's awesome. It's great to hear. Joe, thank you so much for doing this. I mean, this is really, really great. Always great to have you here, and I hope you'll be back with us again. Sounds great, Steve. Thank you. It's awesome. You can read more commentary and market analysis at IBKR Traders Insight at tradersinsight.news. You can keep abreast about topics there, such as those we've discussed today, as well as a wide range of other news critical to your investment needs. And for a full list of financial educational offerings, visit the IBKR campus at ibkr.com. As always, all of our educational material is provided to the public at no cost. Thanks again, Joe. I really appreciate it. It's great. All right. Thanks, Steve. Thank you. Take care. And until next time, I'm Stephen Levine with Interactive Brokers. Thanks for listening to IBKR Podcasts. As always, we have more episodes at ibkrpodcasts.com. And if you're interested in learning more about Interactive Brokers, visit ibkr.com. We offer more trading education material, such as webinars at ibkrwebinars.com, financial and economic commentary at tradersinsight.news, market-related courses at tradersacademy.online, and quant-related articles at ibkrquant.com. The analysis in this material is provided for information only and is not and should not be construed as an offer to sell or the solicitation of an offer to buy any security. To the extent that this material discusses general market activity, industry, or sector trends, or other broad-based economic or political conditions, it should not be construed as research or investment advice. To the extent that it includes references to specific securities, commodities, currencies, or other instruments, those references do not constitute a recommendation by IBKR to buy, sell, or hold such investments. The material does not and is not intended to take into account the particular financial conditions, investment objectives, or requirements of individual customers. Before acting on this material, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and is necessary, seek professional advice.